A week ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6, my aim was to remind you that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Those verses remind us that God forgave us our sins and that he reconciled us to himself. He made us his ambassadors of this good news. God made his own son who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We learned in 2 Corinthians 5 that he changed us by grace and that he charged us also by grace to live for him. So today I want to explore a component, if you will, an aspect, a piece of what it means to be a follower of Christ and simply we'll summarize it with the term biblical generosity. If you uh, receive our electronic newsletter every week, the Hope Connection, and if you don't, all you have to do is sign up and you'll get it. Uh, There's not anything in it worth charging for, so it is free. Uh, But I try to write a little news column every week, and so I wrote this week that many pastors are afraid to talk about money for reasons that are beyond me. First of all, if you don't talk about money, you're going to answer to God for it because God talks about money a lot. And preachers are supposed to talk about everything that God talks about and let the chips fall where they may. So that's the first thing. The second thing is preachers don't like to be seen as self-serving. You know, after all, my salary and the salary of our staff and so forth is dependent upon the gifts of people. Some would call us freeloaders, right? But, you know, if you want to mock somebody, there's always a word, any word, can be used to mock anybody. So preachers are easy targets to be mocked when they talk about money. And uh, I just figure it comes with the territory. So it, it doesn't bother me. Mock all you want. In the end, I will answer to God, and so will you, for every idle word. Be careful, as we all must be careful. So I don't mind talking about money. Uh, I always say, if I might parenthetically, just a little jab. The only people that complain about preachers talking about money are the people who have a problem with money. If, if, if this, it's, like, it's like love. If I preach on love, the only people who have a problem with the preacher talking about love is the people who are not loving. If I talk about gossip, the only people who have a problem with preachers preaching on gossip are gossips and so forth. You could go on and on and on. So I, I would just simply say that if you have a problem with preachers preaching on money, don't tell anybody because you're telling on yourself. And I know that no, none of us want to do that. So I just have a title here. I've, I've called it The Importance of Biblical Generosity Through a Local Church. The Importance of Biblical Generosity Through a Local Church. And I want to show you this in a very atypical place. Matthew 22 if you'll turn there with me, Matthew 22, going to be reading just one paragraph that is virtually never used in the way that I'm about to use it, but I think it should be, so I'm going to use it. So Matthew 22:15. This is a passage where the antagonists of Jesus want to trick him, and they ask him a question, and they frame it in such a way as is typical. They frame it in such a way, and this is often done in political diatribe, 
they frame it in such a way they give two options for an answer. And the smart or wise respondent is the one who doesn't choose either answer. Don't let people frame the question. Therefore, you have to give them their answer. And uh, this answers or these answers would put Jesus in hot water. We'll read the passage and then explain. This is how uh, verse 15 begins. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now you note that uh, in their particular political context, they were anti-Caesar. These are Jews having to live under the heavy hand of an occupying army, the Romans. So there's a garrison of soldiers everywhere they turn, telling them what to do. And their identity is being mocked by these Romans. And so the Jews want to captain their own ship, as every country does. And they can't because of the Romans. And they're forced to pay tax to the Roman governor to keep these soldiers in town. They don't like it. They don't want anything to do with it. And so the Pharisees contrive a, a trap for Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? If he says, of course it is, they will accuse him of being anti-Jewish. And they will make up some lie or some story that suggests he doesn't value their nationalistic heritage. If he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, they will turn him in to the Roman authorities because he's an insurrectionist and an anarchist. They framed the question that way to trap him. And they said he's going to have one of two options and both of them will sink him. That's why the scripture says that Jesus recognizes their malice. Verse 18, why put me to the test? Show me the coin. The coin is a Roman denarius, the most simple of coins, typical coin used to give a man a wage for a single day's work. So the average man worked every day for a denarius, a Roman coin with Caesar's image. Whose inscription is on this? Whose likeness is on it? Well, it's not Abraham Lincoln. It's not George Washington. It's not Andrew Jackson. It's not any of those characters. It's Caesar. All right. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. Now, we've heard that phrase. We know all about it. And I'm going to ask you to think a little more deeply about it this morning. I want to begin by first pointing out that the Christian, the biblical Christian, lives in two worlds. We live in the secular world. We live in America. So we live in the secular world known as America. Not everybody in this room is American, by the way. Not everybody watching 
by camera today is American. But this church is located in America, and the vast majority of us are Americans. And so our governmental context is American. That's fine. We live in that world. But we are Christians. That means we live in another world. That means this is not home. That means we are pilgrims traveling to another place. Jesus is pretty clear about this. In John chapter 18, John chapter 18, verse 33, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate is interrogating Jesus, about to turn him over to be crucified. And this is the conversation. Verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from around here. It's not even on this planet. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be behaving differently. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus is pretty clear that a Christian lives in two worlds. We live in this world, but we are not to be of this world. We are somehow to rise above it. I'm reminded of these words in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, where the Scripture says that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price. We live in two worlds. There is Caesar's world and there is God's world, the world of the Christian. God has given this life to us and he's given us the life to come. We are not our own and we are glad of it. The promise of eternal life transcends our life. Now let's go back to Matthew 22. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's what is God's. Well, we understand that. Most every time I've heard that verse applied in a sermon or a Bible study or just in conversation, people are talking about taxes. Now the person that likes taxes doesn't exist. All right? Nobody wants to give money to anybody by conscription. If you tell me I have to do it, we don't want to do it. It's just a human condition. So nobody wants to pay taxes, and nobody wants to pay too much taxes, and uh, much is made of the fact that there ought to be people who pay more taxes and so forth. We'll stay out of that conversation today, but I assure you there is no person, rich or poor, who wants to pay taxes. So people take that verse, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's, and they talk about the Caesar side of that. I want this morning to talk about the God side of that. Because the same lips that said, give to the government what is the government's, said, give to God what is God's. Few, if any, people talk about it. But a Christian lives in two worlds. He lives in Caesar's world, and he lives in God's world. And we are children of another world. 
And we must come to grips with that and embrace that stewardship. It is a privilege to be a Christian. Not that we would be proud, but it is a privilege to live for Christ. It is a privilege to have our lives spent for Christ. It is a privilege that our lives get to count for Christ, that we get to serve in such a way as to exalt Christ. God has given us this life and the life to come. That is not a small thing. None of us have earned salvation. None of us could do a thing to any way tomorrow earn salvation or even keep our salvation. I've never been good in the way God requires. I'm not going to be good tomorrow in the way God requires. And neither are or will you. We are dependent upon him and his mercy and his forgiveness. This is the point we tried to make last week, that God was in Christ reconciling us. The reason I'm reconciled is because Christ died in my place. Because Christ was punished, I'm not punished. Because Christ is crucified, I'm not crucified. Because Christ was forsaken on the cross, I am not forsaken. This is the great exchange that the Bible talks about. This is the great exchange that the world can't get its mind around because the world cannot understand a God who would give his only begotten son. They can't even understand a human being giving his only begotten son for somebody who is worthy, for somebody who deserves it, as if there could be such an animal. But the world sure doesn't understand how a God who owes the people who created him and have now subsequently rebelled against him, how that God would give his only begotten son for those turkeys. But he did. So a Christian lives in two worlds, and we're delighted that God has saved us and brought us back to himself, and we know that all of this is possible because of the work of Christ. Don't forget, you have a responsibility to both sovereigns today and every day of your life. There's a second thing I want you to see, and we're going to go back to the Old Testament here. Many of you know, uh, and if you don't, I'm not offering a commercial, I'm just making an explanation, but since the pandemic, I've been doing uh, a Facebook Live event every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m., takes about 10 minutes until, unless it takes 11 or 12. I think one time I did 17. I felt guilty, guilty for about 10 minutes, but I got over it. Um, but I do a little thing I call the Word on Wednesday, and I did uh, the miracles of Christ in the Gospel of John, and then from there I just moved into the, the Psalms. And we're just making our way through selective Psalms. And, and that brings us to Psalm 50, my Facebook Live Word on Wednesday, last Wednesday, was Psalm 50. Turn there, if you will. Psalm 50. I want to show you. There's a second reason, or a second aspect of what it means to be a Christian, a biblical Christian, faithful in being generous with his money, that uh, stands out here. And it, uh, I, I had not seen this until... This week, when I was doing Psalm 50, but I was reminded of this, and I said, yes, that's, that is a good word. It needs to be said. So here we go. I want you to notice the point that he's going to make in verse 7 and following, Psalm 50, is that the people of God honor God. The people of God honor God. So a Christian's responsibility 
is to live his life in such a way as to honor God. So here it is, verse 7. Hear, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I'll stop there a moment and tell you what he just said. He said, I don't have a beef with you, pun intended. I don't have a problem with you because of your sacrifices. They're everywhere. You're doing a good job. You're coming to the temple, making sacrifices. Uh, This is probably a tabernacle circumstance rather than temple. But you're coming. You're bringing your animals. Animals are dying. Uh, You're going through the motions of all of that. Wonderful. I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices. But I am about to rebuke you. Notice what he says. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Now, what is the point of all that? He said, Look, I'm not hungry, so your sacrifices are not helping me any if all you're doing is just bringing me meat. I don't eat meat, I don't drink blood, so all that sacrifice is not advantageous to me. What really matters to me is that the people bringing those sacrifices have a heart for me. Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What I really want is people who will come to me and be grateful. Be grateful. I have mentioned many times, you know, we have nine grandchildren. It seems like every month there's a birthday. And my girls, our girls have coached our grandchildren that when their grandparents give them a gift, it's appropriate to say thank you. But once you get a subset of nine, can we all agree that some of them are better at that than others? And some of them you can kind of see through it and you kind of say, that was kind of a put up thank you right there. That was kind of a thank you that their mama told them to say. They didn't really want to say thank you because that's not really kind of who they are or what they are. Some of our grandchildren are more thankful than others. They're all almost perfect, but there is a little flaw here. They're maybe not quite as grateful as they ought to be. And that's true of children, right? You ever given gifts at Christmas to children? I mean, they'll, they'll say thank you and then throw your gift over against the baseboard and pick up a box and start playing with the box. Gratitude is not the long suit of most human beings. But it is the long suit or the intended long suit of every Christian. God intends not that we go through the motions of of religion, but that rather we have a heart and a devotion of thanksgiving. Read again verse 12. Psalm 50, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. I am not lacking. I am not deficient. God doesn't need my money. 
Offer to God, rather, verse 14, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Trust God. Look to God. A Christian lives his life to honor God. Let me show you this in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1. I'm not going to wait for you to find it, but I'll just make a note of it. Uh, Verse 21, Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, he's rebuking the world here because they have failed God. Although they knew God, they did not, and here's two things, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Because, but rather they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, they they pursued idolatry because they forgot the one true God. They did not honor him as God and did not give thanks. Those are both sides of the same coin. Did not honor him as God, so because he's not important, why should I thank him? Why should I honor him? Because he hasn't done anything for me. You see, as as God is diminished, or as I use the phrase, as God becomes small and man becomes big, we don't honor God. We don't honor God, and we find ways to disassociate ourselves from God, and our behavior reflects it. There's another example. Some would say, well, you know, what should we do? How, how do we honor God? Well, a way is through biblical generosity. Let me show you an example in the Old Testament that I love dearly, Genesis 14. You'll recognize this story since we just finished Hebrews, because we're going to look at Hebrews quickly in a minute. <clears throat> you remember this story from Genesis 14? Abraham is a large property owner outside in the country. His nephew, Lot, lives in the city of Sodom. Lot lives in Sodom. This is before Sodom is later destroyed. And the kings from the north, which is today modern Syria, come in and they have a raiding party, we'll call it. Five kings from the north conspire against four kings in and around the areas of of Sodom. And they come in and they do battle against them and they defeat them and they take their men and women and all their spoil, all their animals and money and everything, and they go back to Syria. So that's happened in the opening verses of Genesis 14. We're going to pick up the story in verse 17. Abraham, Abraham goes John Wayne here. He calls everybody together, all of his men. The Bible says there's more than 350 of them. And Abraham is a rich man. And he, he, he sends a raiding party after the raiding party. So they head north and they catch them. In the middle of the night, they attack them. And they capture all of their possessions and defeat these kings and so forth. And now in chapter 14, verse 17, Abraham has come back. So he's gone north, he's defeated the armies of Syria, and now he's come back. And here's what happens. Notice what happens, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of C, that that word has six syllables in it. There's no way I'm going to get it right, so I'm not even going to try it. The defeat of C, that's one of the kings of the north. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveth. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He, Melchizedek, was priest of El Elyon, God Most High. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. So stop here. So Melchizedek, the priest of God, 
comes out to greet Abraham on his return from capturing the people back, from rescuing the people. And Abraham is traveling with this great entourage. He took more than 350 of his own men, and he's bringing back the people or inhabitants of four cities. He's bringing them all back from captivity. He's bringing back all their animals. He's bringing back all their money. He's bringing back all of this loot, or, or if you will, bounty. He's, he's, this is great entourage. And so the king of Salem is a man named Melchizedek who happens to be the priest of God. And he comes out and he says, Blessed be Abram by God most high. And notice Abram's response, verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's kind of a random statement. In the King James, that's the word tithe. Tithe just means tenth. If you use the word tithe, you're using King James English. Real people don't talk like that anymore. But real people still tithe. Some would say the tithe is a bad way to honor God. And the reason they give, it's not because God doesn't deserve the tithe. It is because the perception is that the tithe is Old Testament law, which it was. In fact, there were several tithes. Every year there were at least two different tithes. So you had to give 20% of your money to support the government of Israel. And then on the third year, you had to give a third tithe. So that meant that your average tax tithe every year to the government of Israel was 23 and third percent every year. And it supported the government of Israel. The, the, and the government of Israel was a theocracy, so it was a religious government. So you're supporting the high priest. How did the high priest have a house? Because the government provided it. He was the government. How did the Sanhedrin, the, the, the court that tried Jesus, how were they supported? They were supported by the tithes, which is a religious tax of the people of Israel. And people say, well, when Jesus came, he did away with the Old Testament law. He fulfilled the Old Testament law, and now we don't have to tithe. There is only one problem, friend, with that line of thinking. It is Swiss cheese. And the reason it is, is because the first occurrence of the word tenth in the Old Testament is Genesis 14. And it involves Abraham. And the law is given by Moses who lived centuries later. Now I would ask you then, why did Abraham give a tithe? And the answer is not because some law told him to. Not because some church told him to. Not because some priest told him to. He gave a tithe because in his heart, he wanted to honor God. A Christian lives... To honor God. People say all the time, Brother Greg, I can't do anything. To which I want to say, and I never do because I don't want to get into people's personal business, I want to say, well, you could tithe because there's not a person on the planet who's not receiving some sort of income. You could tithe. That's a way to honor God. You say, well, I don't have a lot. Well, have you noticed that God doesn't care that you don't have a lot? In fact, God's in charge of all such things. He just wants us to honor God. He doesn't put a dollar figure on it. He knows how much money you have. He knows how much money you don't have. He knows all that. It's the same with 
with your children, your grandchildren, you don't love your children because they have a bunch or don't have a bunch. You don't give to your children because they have a bunch or don't have a bunch or because they can give a bunch or they ought to give a bunch or any of that. You don't have any regard to those things when you love. True love, genuine love, biblical love, sacrificial love says you're empty, but I'm full and I'm going to give you some. I'm going to bless you. And day after day after day, God, out of the reservoir of his grace, he gives every one of us some. He gives me what I need day after day after day after day. In fact, he tells me, seek the kingdom and all these things, meaning food, shelter, and clothing, Matthew chapter 6, shall be added to you. Quit worrying about that stuff. Honor me. Because a true Christian lives to honor his God. This is the way it's always been. From Genesis 14, Abram, the first tither, who lived centuries before Moses, before the law, tithed because he wanted to honor the God who went with him up north, who went with him into battle against the kings of Syria, and who has been with him in bringing all of these wonderful people back home. And when the priest of God steps on out in the valley and says, blessed be Abram by God most high, Abram says, blessed be God who took care of me every step of the way. And he's a tither. Much could be said about that. But a true Christian wants to honor his God. And money is a way to do that. There's one third thing, last thing, and I close with this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. A Christian lives to help others glorify God. Help others glorify God. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 23. You'll remember the context of 2 Corinthians 8 is that Paul is trying to raise money for poor Christians back in Jerusalem. He's in Corinth, writing a letter to Corinth. Corinth is in Greece, not in Israel. So he's raising money for Jewish Christians who are broke by going to Greek Christians who are not broke. And so he says, verse 23, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to these men. I read those two verses because I want you to note a couple of things quickly, and then we're going to see something in chapter 9. Note that he is serving as a representative between churches. There is not one church. Now there is, but there's not. There is a universal church. There is a Catholic church, little c, not the Roman Catholic church that I'm talking about, the, the universal church. The word Catholic just means universal. So the universal church, the worldwide church, is real. There is one church. And we shall gather together together from every tribe, every tongue, every land, every nation, one day to sing the praises of our Savior. There is one church. But the apostle is writing to a church in Corinth on behalf of a church in Jerusalem that needs money. So you'll note here that he sends Titus, who is his partner and fellow worker, for your benefit. And Titus' job is to tell the Corinthians... You need to raise some money and give it to me, and I'll take it to Paul, who'll take it to Jerusalem. 
And so Paul is writing the letter to say, in part, among other things, give the money to Titus. He's my man. So that's what's going on. Look at chapter 9, now verse 6. The point is this. This is his exhortation to give. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. and Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided, decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why would God love a cheerful giver? For the same reason you want your grandchildren to say thank you out of their own heart instead of because their mama told them to. There's a difference. One is cheerful and the other is a duty. The other is an obligation. The other is forced. It doesn't feel like love. It doesn't feel like honor. It doesn't feel the same if it's forced. So why does God love a cheerful giver? Because God wants your heart to be toward him. He has saved you and reconciled you and and rescued you from hell. And if I were God and I'm not, it would really bug me if I had done so much and people valued it so little. The good news is God is better than me. Praise God. And that God is patient with our lack of regard for Him. A Christian lives to help others glorify God. Look at verse 8, chapter 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see how again we're back to honoring God? Why does a Christian give? So that God will be honored. So that God will be honored in helping you have what you need. And you will join me in honoring God. I honor God by giving to you. You honor God by receiving what you need and giving glory to God that God moved me to help you. So what is this church's responsibility? It is to give and to give and to give, to help others in need, to help supply the needs of others, to respond to the needs of others, to provide for the means whereby others can know the gospel, hear the gospel, love the gospel, follow the gospel, respond to the gospel, so that the abundance of thanksgiving that we know will abound to them, that they too will become grateful. Why do I want you to be blessed? So that you can join me in saying, hallelujah. So that you can join me in saying glory to God. I want you to know the one who's changed me so that you might be changed. And can join me in the heavenly chorus. And even now the earthly chorus. Of saying glory to God. The objective around here is not to build a big operation. We have a big operation. And by pretty much any metric... We have a lot of things going. I mean, our budget is big. We have a lot of people. There's a lot of people in this room. There's a lot of people who are not in this room, who will be in this room, Lord willing, 
when this pandemic thing is gone. We're glory, we glory in that. I have a list here. I asked Dr. Scriven to help me with the list, and he was very faithful to produce it. I asked him to do a space study of where we're crowded in our rooms. You, you might not know this, but we have, we have an abundance of fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And that would be 9, 10, and 11 years olds. That means 9, 10, and 11-year-olds, we had a baby boom. This morning, there were 18 families in front of you. I don't know about you, but that feels like a lot of babies. And every one of them are over there in two rooms in baby beds, custom for them, hygiened for them, with people that look like you, rocking them. And guess what? In a year, they're all going to be moving around a lot. And they're going to be promoted to the next room and the next room and the next room. And pretty soon we're going to have a room. Have you ever been in a room with 18 four-year-olds? The answer to that is no, and I'm not about to start. I'm the preacher. I'm not going. Well, you can't do it. You can't function. You got you to gotta have two rooms for 18 four-year-olds. And we're delighted. We have rooms until we don't. And when we run out, they got to come in here. And that doesn't bother me because I can yell, but their mamas don't like it one bit. They needed 60 minutes alone. I get it. And we wanted them to have teaching that's age appropriate. And then there'll be five-year-olds, and then there'll be six-year-olds. And next year, there'll be not 18, there may be 19, there may be 20, who knows. And as a church, we want to continue to minister. We want to continue to reach out. And then we have so many things. You know, we have 50 acres here around back that you, that's all in trees. I wish I could tell you it was in, you know, old growth hardwoods and we're going to get rich by selling the hardwoods. But it's really a bunch of scrub. So for those of you who think that we're timber barons, you are sadly mistaken. But we do have 50 acres back here. What are we going to do with 50 acres? I don't know. I've got a list of 30 things in my office that people have suggested over the 15 years that I've been your pastor. This is a church that's a fairly large church and we don't have a fellowship hall. There are a lot of people here who really want a fellowship hall. But I price those things. I mean, that's like buying one of those top-end Teslas. Nobody's driving one. Chapel, amphitheater, prayer garden, prayer walk, a missions training facility, missions housing, senior adult housing, intern housing, residency housing, counseling center, office space for nonprofits that we support, recreation fields, medical dental ministry, all the second harvest ministry that we do at the other campus potentially could be brought here and so forth and so on. We've got acreage, acreage, acreage. We've got all that stuff. We're about to get out of debt. And guess what you do when you get out of debt? You don't go back into debt. But we got a lot of property, and we got a lot of needs, and we got a lot of interests, and we got a lot of burdens, and what are we going to do? Well, we'll figure it out. You know, by God's grace, we'll figure it out. But I want to tell you, there is no chance that if we're going to stay alive, that we won't need money. If we're going to continue to press the gospel forward, if we're going to continue to support Nick and Susan Lewis in Philadelphia, or Vimal and Louise in Germany, or Becky DeWitt in Ukraine, or our missionaries in Peru, or our missionaries in the Philippines, or our missionaries in Central Asia, whom we love dearly. If we're going to continue to send money to support church starts all across North America, to be with Jeff and Olivia and Vancouver, 
to be with people whom we love dearly. If we're going to continue to do those things, we have to realize that we want people to honor God together. That it's not a church, it's churches. Churches banding together, joining hands, joining arms, and saying we can do our part. We can't do everybody's part, but we can do our part. So as a congregation, we want to live lives that glorify God because God has given his son so that we might know him. And so because I am forever changed by the work of Christ, my life in this world is forever changed. Susan and I render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But we don't stop there. We also render to God that which is God's. And we do so because God is more worthy than Caesar. And if I'm going to jail for one of those, it will not be for cheating God. I don't intend to cheat Caesar either, but I intend to be faithful as God gives me grace and as God gives you grace and as God gives our church grace. We've been here 60 plus years and if God will permit it, we're going to be here a lot longer than that. And we're going to lift high the great name of Christ, the Savior. And we're going to invite all men everywhere. Come, believe this gospel, and be changed. And God will reconcile you to himself. And he will forgive you of your sins. And he will make you whole. This is our message, has been our message, and it will be our message. Let us do it together. Let's pray now. Father, I thank you for the mercies of Christ that you've shown to us in Christ, Lord. We know that we have the hope of eternal life in Christ. So, Lord, help us to be faithful. The stewardship of time, the stewardship of life, the stewardship of our affections, and even the stewardship of our money. Help us to be faithful. Thank you for your tender mercies. Thank you for Christ. Give us grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.